0: Good morning, this is the word of God to us and this morning I'd love to invite you it's really pictorial so I just invite you to enter in with your imagination taking whatever physical posture eyes closed that would help after this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven and one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders. Clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature had a face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord God almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. Thank you, Cynthia. Good morning.
1: Good to see you all this morning. Most of you know my wife, Laura, and I are back from a year in ministry in Costa Rica. We returned there after a few years, and uh, we were there this last year and enjoyed a new direction in our ministry and teaching at a seminary. But I just want to briefly thank you for your prayers and your encouragement and your support and, uh, and use this as a little teaser to invite you to our vision lunch this afternoon to hear the rest of the story. So I hope you'll come to that. But thank you so much for your encouragement of us. Well, this week, we, uh, in our study of Revelation, we, we are coming to a passage which is more like what people think of when they think of the book of Revelation. Ernan walked us through seven sermons last week, like he said. It was very difficult. He did a great job of walking us through those letters to the churches. But here we're going to get to this, the, the visions that, that Revelation is famous for. And before we open it up, I want to just discuss briefly how it is we're looking at these, how it is we're reading this book. I don't know if you get this question. I get it relatively regularly. Someone will come up to me and say, do you take the Bible literally? Do you read it literally? Now, often it's by some, somebody with uh, some attitude who assumes I'm going to say yes and therefore categorize me as an idiot. But let me explain what I think is the right answer to that question. That the right way to understand the Bible is simply to understand it as the writers intend us to understand it. Let me give you an example. Let me explain. If we open up to the first few verses of the book of Luke, Luke tells us that he has researched carefully this life of Jesus, interviewing eyewitnesses and putting everything in an orderly account so that we, his audience, can have certainty about what we've been taught and certainty about what we believe. So we know from the book of Luke that this is a historical study, a historical narrative. That's the way we read it. We're reading history. But when you get to chapter 10, all of a sudden Jesus says, well, a guy was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he got beat up and left for dead. Priest went by, did nothing. A Levite went by, did nothing. But a a, a Samaritan came by and bound up his wounds and took care of him and paid for his expenses. Well, how come Luke didn't tell us the name of that priest or the name of the Samaritan? Well, because this was a story. This was a piece of fiction. We call it a parable inside the historical narrative. Nobody's confused by that. Okay? We don't take that story literally, but it teaches a literal truth to the lawyer who asked the question, Who's my neighbor? Likewise, when we read in that famous passage in Psalm 23, so famous I'm phasing out on it right now, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Well, we're not going to go look for that valley a little south of Jerusalem. This is poetry, and we know it. It's a poetic valley meant to say we're, these are the low times in life when we're facing challenges and difficulties and darkness. It's a metaphor. We know it. There's no confusion about that. We don't take that literally. We know exactly how to read it because the writers have set us up to understand it that way. We read a Pauline letter. We have it, who it's addressed to, and the issues he wants to discuss. There's no confusion about that. So we read it as the authors intended. Now, the only difficult here is this is a different kind of genre when we come to Revelation. It's apocalyptic literature. There's examples of this like Ezekiel and Isaiah and Zechariah and Daniel in the Old Testament. And mostly the purpose is prophetic, right? It communicates in images to, well, prophecy in most of the Bible is meant to exhort us more than to predict. There are some predictions in prophecy. It is predictive in some ways. But mostly it's exhortative. Give up your idols. Come back to God. Spend time in the Word. Get back on the right track with the Father. And that's true of this book as well. But what challenges us is the images because they're so extravagant. Now, uh, I want to give a quick example of what I mean here just from another context. Can I have that first slide up, Anna, please? Some of you are going to recognize this. This is a famous painting by Pablo Picasso, called La Guernica. Guernica is a small town in northern Spain. In 1937, the Nazis bombed it. They were cooperating with Franco in the fascist movement in Italy. And this poor little Spanish town was bombed mercilessly. Now, look what you can see there. These guys are obviously in a basement or a shelter of some kind. And everything is being shaken. Children are being killed. People are being stepped on, cut, split, killed. And one person is looking in and being horrified. Well, Picasso wants us to be horrified. He, we understand that this is about the tragedy of war, the merciless uh, treatment of its victims. He wants his audience, audience to be moved to outrage and action and to resist this force. We understand that. That's an apocalyptic painting. So we read the images that way, right? We could try to pin some of these things down to specific people, but Picasso was even reluctant to do this. He said, I want the impact to be. It's clear enough, he said. So that's a little bit of what we're trying to do when we look at Revelation. It's trying to communicate through these wild images. Okay, you can take that slide off now. Thanks, Anna. So let's get into chapter 4, and let's pray as we do. Lord, I pray that we would see this as you want us to see it. You're the author of this. Help us to intend to understand it as you intend and to respond as you intend by the power of your spirit, to put it into practice in our lives. May our faith be encouraged and our love for you be increased. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the chapter that Cynthia just read, the predominant scene is God on the throne, right? He is, he's seated on the throne. And and the words he uses are are like precious gems to describe the beauty of the Lord because language is stretched in this vision, right? But what I want you to see is that everything else in this scene is surrounding the throne, if you look at that chapter. In other words, God is the center, the origin, and the purpose of all creation. Now, that sounds simple and maybe even elementary, but we struggle to live in light of that reality. We are so sinful in our sinful nature that we take everything in a self-centered way rather than a God-centered way. We think that life is all about us, but really life is all about God. Just a week or so ago, Laura and I were up in northern Idaho for a little vacation, and we passed through the town of Wallace, Idaho. Okay? Uh, can we get that next slide up, Anna? Wallace has a really interesting little slogan. I don't know if you can see it there. Wallace, Idaho, the center of the universe. And for us here today, they publish with it another little uh, picture. Go to that next slide, Hannah. Just so you know where you and I are. Okay? We're just south of the center of the universe. right? Now, this is kind of tongue-in-cheek, right? They're just trying to promote the city a little bit. But that's what we all struggle with. We think we're the center of the universe. And, and uh, getting out of that is really, really difficult to do. Um. I like the way Rick Warren says it at the beginning of his book, The Purpose-Driven Life. He says, It's not about you. The purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment, your peace of mind, or even your happiness. It's far greater than your family, your career, or even your wildest dreams and ambitions. If you want to know why you were placed on this planet, you must begin with God. You were born by His purpose and for His purpose. See, God's at the center. And the degree to which we live with the understanding that God is at the center, is the degree to which we live life as it's meant to be lived. And the degree to which we don't live with God at the center is the degree to which we're living out of line, out of balance, or aiming at the wrong things. So with that proper orientation of God at the center, we can see in this passage uh, in chapter 4 some of some specific characteristics of God that I'd like to draw our attention to. Um, at the end of the chapter, the last chapter that Ernan spoke on last week, Jesus is knocking at the door, right? And he's saying, open up to me. And in chapter 4, we open up with another door into heaven. And there's an invitation to John to come up. John doesn't have to climb the highest mountain. John doesn't have to walk on burning coals. John doesn't have to sit under a tree and wait for inspiration. God invites him up. He opens the door for him and says, come up here. I want you to see something. One of the fundamental things about God as the center is He is also the initiator of everything. God is the initiator. He creates the universe and then places man in the middle of it. Answering the question, why is there something rather than nothing? (laughs) Because God initiates. When Adam and Eve sin, God goes and finds them in the garden. Where are you? They're hiding. He initiates. In chapter 12 of Genesis, God goes and finds Abram over in Ur of the Chaldeans and says... You're the one that I'm going to start my new nation, my new tribe, my new, my new blessing for all the earth through you, Abram. The word of the Lord comes to the prophets in the Old Testament. They don't find it. They don't write it. It comes to them. And the greatest sample of initiation, example of initiation on God's part, is when Jesus comes to earth. I'm going to go rescue them. Right? I, I had a kind of a weird experience uh, in preparing this, I was—I have a little spot up on the Boise River where it's kind of around a corner and on a stump, and I sit and pray and practice sermons and stuff, and nobody ever bothers me there. But I was looking at this exact point about two weeks ago, and I'm sitting there all quiet, and I'm thinking, Man, God, and this old-timer, this old guy, walks around the corner with his dog, and the first thing he says to me, he says, I see you're reading a good book there. What church do you go to? I said, well, i go to Co-Community Church. Oh, David Roper. Yeah, I know that church. Uh, Yeah, you know, I don't believe any of it. (laughs) Just the first five seconds. So we talked for about 15 minutes, and he tells me his story of disillusionment and physical problems, problems in his marriage, and some scientific issues that he couldn't get past. I had a beautiful conversation. He was very cordial, very nice. I shared some things that I thought might at least help him think about them in a in a healthier way. And then at the end, I said, hey, can I pray for you? He said, of course. And I prayed, and I said, amen. And then he prayed a little bit. And uh, it was just so extraordinary. I'm thinking about God initiating. Here, I think I'm hidden off in this little corner. And he comes around the corner, right? And we have this wonderful conversation. And as he left, this is true, I'm not lying. As he left, I said, by the way, what's the name of your dog? Aslan was the name of his dog. God, just a little spooky at that point, right? God is initiating with you and me all the time. We need to pay attention to his initiation, not resist it, not avoid it. I don't know what he's putting his finger on in your life, who he's moving you toward, what he's moving you away from, but let's listen because he's talking, he's initiating, he's active. God is always on the move, okay? And so that's, that's the first thing I see is God is, is involved, he's active, he's initiating all the time. And let us listen instead of filling up our souls and minds with the junk that the world offers us. Another thing we need to consider here is that because God is at the center, then seeing life from his perspective is essential. Notice he asked John to come up and see. He's trying to give John his perspective. One of the most beautiful examples of this in the Old Testament for me is in 2 Kings chapter 6 where Elisha has been hassling and pestering the king of Syria to the point that the king of Syria says, I've got to kill this guy. I've got to get him. Elisha's been traveling around the country with his disciple, and one day the, the Syrian king says, Okay, just go get him. He sends out this vast army, and they surround him up in the mountains. And the, uh, the, they wake up in the morning, and the arm is there. And the text reads like this. Uh, the, his, uh, Elisha's... Disciple says, Alas, my my master, what shall we do? And Elisha said, Don't be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Two of them, a vast army, and Elisha says, We got them outnumbered. Then Elisha prayed, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. The Lord's army was right there, but he couldn't see it. He wants John in this passage to have God's perspective. The enemy gets us locked into a horizontal perspective where all we can see is something on the earth, the earth's value system, the earth's priorities, the earth's arguments, and we don't see it from God's perspective. This is one of the purposes of Revelation, to give us heaven's view of these things. Right? Just think about the very first sin, Adam and Eve. What does the snake manage to do to Eve? To get her to turn around so all she can see is the one tree that's forbidden. And she misses... The vast force that's permitted. But now she has to have this one, right? She's missing that earthly, that worldly, that, excuse me, God's perspective. We need God's perspective desperately. One of the Spanish commentators, I'm, don't worry, I'm going to read it in English, said this, I think he put it really well. The constant human temptation is to see our immediate reality as the final reality and to suppose or fear that the grand truths of the faith are remote and small or secondary compared to the force of history. This we wrongly call being realistic or having our feet firmly on the ground. But John reveals to us here that if our eyes are not firmly fixed in the ultimate reality of the throne and its occupant, then our feet will never be firmly set on the ground. The first requirement is to, to be realistic is to have seen the ultimate reality. Okay, now let's get a little more into seeing what it is that's surrounding this throne. Now that we see that God is the center And the origin and the purpose of everything. What's surrounding the throne? And the first thing you notice in verse 3, it is surrounded with a rainbow. Clear reference to the covenant that God made with Noah back in Genesis, right? This covenant, with its various other promises that come with it, it's God's commitment to creation, to his preservation of life on earth. And it is the necessary foundation for all the other stories of redemption and all the other covenants that he's being made, that he's going to make in the Bible. But what I want you to see is the throne is surrounded by it. If you're going to get close to God or if God is going to get close to you, it's going to be through the covenants, through his promises, through what he has put, that that beautiful God of the covenant that he is. We're going to go through and over those covenants. And it's like a protective buffer that we can count on. That's what God is surrounded by, his covenants and promises. Next, we see the elders, 24 elders. Now, I'm not going to unpack every element of this. I don't have time, but I want to talk about the elders briefly. Uh, there's been lots of speculation about these elders. There are the angels, are they the apostles and the 12 tribes or whatever, but I just take the language most simply. It says they're elders. And the elders were, in the, in the parlance of the day, the, the ones that God had put in charge of caring for his people and doing the work, whether it was in the synagogue or in the New, New Testament church. The elders were the, the ones who were taking care of the ministry, carrying out the ministry to the people, right? And what I see here is these are the ones They just represent God's sharing his work with mankind, as he has done with the beginning, to incorporate you and me in his work. He made the garden, and he put Adam and Eve. He says, take care of that. Right? He appointed the prophets to, to declare the word of God. He wants them to care for the word of God, the leaders we're supposed to represent. He uses human beings, can you believe it, to do his divine work. Up to the New Testament, where Jesus sends out the disciples on short-term outreach projects, and then ultimately in the Great Commission to where we are sent to every corner, every tribe, tongue, and nation, to carry out his word, to carry out his discipleship. Right? What a beautiful thing. What a privilege to be part of God's calling, to be part of God's work. Now we see these four creatures, weird but recognizable, right? The ox, the lion, the eagle, and man. I just take them to be sort of the highest representations of the created order, also surrounding. This whole passage is about God as the creator. Okay? What's more important than, than that necessarily is what they're doing. And now the scene becomes one of spe, uh, spectacular worship, right? And what they say in these little, there's two doxologies here that are really, really interesting in terms of how they're being handled. Can I get that next slide up there, Anna? I think it's here, yeah. The, the, that phrase, holy, 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 as soon as John hears it, he's going to flash on Isaiah 6 that where he sees the throne of God high and lifted up. But, but the revelation passage, that what John hears, it's slightly changed. And the way it's changed is really interesting. In the first line, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, it says in Isaiah. Here, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That word almighty was taken directly from the phrases that the culture used to worship the Roman emperors. The next one, the whole earth is full of his glory, is changed to who was and is and is to come. It's eternality. Now, if you look down in verse 11, which I don't have up here, in verse 11, we read that uh, it says, Worthy are you, Lord our God. That, That phrase, worthy are you, doesn't have an Old Testament antecedent. It's not a Hebrew term. It's a term taken directly from the worship of the Roman emperors when they would come back in, and go through their ticker tape parades. What I want you to see is that God is taking the Roman word to say, no, the real almighty is me. The one who really is going to last forever is not the Roman emperor, it's me. The one you can really trust is me. And he borrows the language from the culture and says, no, no, no. They're they're a little bit full of themselves. I'm the one that supplies. And that had to be a tremendous comfort to John as he was facing... Roman oppression and as the church was facing that Roman suffering. Really, God's in charge. The chapter ends with more spectacular scenes of worship. I love this scene where they cast their crowns. It's a name for a great Christian band. Don't you think that would be good? Um, but they cast their crowns before the Lord. I think it's a picture of when they, when they really worship all their authority. These crowns kind of speak of their authority and the, their little realm of authority in the work that God has given them. It's, it's, it's nothing compared to knowing God, which is exactly what Paul said, right? In Philippians, he says, Whatever gain I had, I count for loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. So there's this spectacular, oh, This is everything. God is everything. I don't need to worry. I can I can be at peace. And my authority, I don't need to cling to it like some, you know, some dictator or some petty bureaucrat. Ah, no, no. God's worth everything. right? Now, at the beginning of the chapter, the voice said, Come up and I'll show you what must take place. What must take place is that you and I need to see God on the throne, surrounded by his covenant, in total control, in total peace. The world is not going into chaos. God's absolutely in control. He's sovereign and he's good. The question is, do you and I believe that? Do we really believe that God is in control? Because when we fail to believe that God is in control, we panic. Or we invent other ways of handling what we think are our needs. We show signs that we, we don't really trust the Creator. We invent ways to, to uh, handle our stresses we, instead of trusting who the one who threw the stars in the sky. It's a great challenge, and this has been, the older I get, the more this truth is important to me. God's in control. When I was younger, I thought I had more control. The older I get, the less control I realize I have. And I lean more and more on God's control. All right, that brings us to chapter 5, where things get pretty spectacular here. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Uh, the more time John is allowed to look at this scene, the more he sees. Which is a, a, a lesson for us that we need—you can't be rushed in looking at what God has given you. You can't be rushed in looking at the Word of God any more than you, those of you who've hunted mule deer. You know, you get up there and you look at the far side of a canyon. You look at it, uh, nothing there, but if you sit down and wait and use your spotting scope, you appreciate. Oh, here's a group of does down here. Oh, there's a nice buck bedded down under the rim rock up here. It takes time to see what's really there, and he notices. That there's a scroll, the one on the throne has a scroll. I'm sorry, I love this. This may be weird for you, but I love this. There's a book in this vision. There's a book. Quick question. Just do the math quietly to yourself. How many sermons do you think you've heard in your lifetime? Some of us, it's in thousands. Next question, how many do you remember really well? I'm not going to remember my own tomorrow. Right? Right? God loves us so much, he puts it in writing so that we can review it, so that we can talk about it, so that we can memorize it. What a blessing. Incredible. The scroll is simply the story of salvation as as God is going to redeem the the creation and, and make things right again. That's what this is. And don't think it's a scroll we don't have access to. The whole rest of the book is the opening of the book. We have it right here. Right? What a beautiful thing that God gives us, the word Woe to us if we neglect so great a gift. It's like forgetting to breathe. But now the drama enters. Now the, now the, now the, I didn't invent this, by the way. The drama in the text is that no one is found worthy to open this book. No one can understand it. And John cries and he weeps because he thinks mankind's sin has forever shut him out from God's ways. It's almost, you know, it's almost like the language is such that people come up and try to open, can't open it, can't open it. Sort of like the end of the Odyssey, I don't know if you remember that, where nobody can shoot Odysseus' bow until Odysseus shows up. Then he can shoot his own bow. But the problem is relieved at the end when he said, well, there is one. The elder comes and says, no, no, there is one who is, is worthy, who can open the, the book. And he calls him the Lion of Judah and the Root of David. He's the one who's conquered, Right? Lion of Judah was the the phrase that Jacob gave his son Judah, the lion, when he prayed over his sons and blessed them at the end of his own life. And he said to Judah, you are going to be the lion. Your foot will be on the neck of your opponents. The picture is one of power, strength, okay, physical power and strength. The Isaiah passage, excuse me, the root of David is from Isaiah and Zechariah. And it refers to the Davidic line that will lead to the Messiah. So these two picture the, the Messiah as a, a powerful political leader, powerful in a political dynasty kind of thing. And it says that's the one that's overcome, that's the one that's worthy of opening. Now, that's the hero, that's the kind of hero the Jews were looking for, right? In the time of Jesus, they were looking for a Messiah that would be a lion, that would be a king that would kick the butts of the Romans and get him out of there. That's the kind of hero you and I look for. You've been in the movies this summer. You've seen the Avengers, okay? You've seen we, we, we love to watch Captain America, Superman, Wonder Woman, whatever it is. These are the kind of heroes that yeah, get him, yeah, yeah, and we're into it, right? This is what this is what they are waiting for. We love that kind of stuff. It gets our blood up, and we go to the movie and spend good money to do it. Wish we were them, right? But now, the story really gets radical. Five, six. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a, we're expecting to see Captain America, a lamb standing as though it had been slain, seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits sent out into all the earth. I'm sorry, this is kind of a disappointment. A slain lamb? A couple of things are pretty, pretty clear here, I think. This is a reference to the Passover lamb in Exodus. The blood of that lamb spread on the doorpost helped the people to escape the angel of death and to escape the enslavement of the Egyptians and to emerge as a new nation. Okay? Uh, but notice that the lamb that was slain is standing. This the lamb, this this lamb has been resurrected. And here, the Passover lamb of Exodus finds its fulfillment in the resurrected Jesus. Okay, um, But the slain, now, the slain lamb now is going to take center stage in the whole rest of the book. But notice, this isn't what we expect. This is against our grain of thinking. We're looking for a Captain America. We're looking for a Superman. We're looking for a great king, a great political leader, whatever it might be, a Wonder Woman. And here we get a slain lamb. How big do you think this slain lamb was? Come on, it's a lamb, about the size of a schnauzer. We're not talking about anything. You know, it's, not, it's not a great dane, even, right? It's, 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 a, it's a little thing. But this is the one who conquered. See, he's the Lamb of God who conquered. That's how he conquered, by being the slain Lamb of God. This is God's way. It's not our way. God conquers and overcomes sin and evil by the death of a Lamb. It confused the Jews. It confused the Greeks. It confuses people today. How can this be? How can this be? Now let's look at what he did. Verse 7 and 8. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. He walks right up to the throne. In any, other, in any situation, to go uninvited to the throne, that's the death penalty. Right? You can't just walk up to the throne, unless, of course, it's your throne too. And so, this lamb who emerged from among the elders, got a human root, got a human origin, now can go to the throne of God, the divine. This is another picture of God's divinity and his humanity, Jesus' divinity and his humanity, kind of couched between the lines here. And this scroll is really... He takes the scroll. But now we need to think about the author, John. Do you remember the first verses of his first book? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John portrays Jesus as the Word of God, the very means by which God created the world, right? And now the Lamb of God is going to take the Word of God, but he is the Word of God too. No wonder God gives him the scroll. It's his scroll. It's his Word, right? It's, it's his to express. Only He's the only one that can explain it because he's the owner and the author of that whole thing, right? Um, Jesus tried to, to point at this even during his earthly life. In John 5, he was talking to the Pharisees and he said, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, and yet you refuse to come come to me to have life. And then remember, after his resurrection, he was explaining the scriptures to those two guys on the road to Emmaus. And he said, the text says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is words all about me. This is the one who takes the scroll. Only he can open it up to us, right? In other words, he is the one through whom the whole book must be understood. We were at my son Luke's graduation a couple weeks ago. We got to go out to dinner with uh, his favorite English professor. Been a professor there for uh, 30 years or something. And we had a discussion about what I do and we do and stuff. And he said to me, and he knows the Bible. He knew quite a bit about the Bible. He said, well, how are we supposed to understand the Bible? Whoa, comes right at me, right? But it was, uh, thankfully I'd been kind of studying this, and it says, well, I said, obviously God has to illuminate you, illuminate your mind, but the whole thing must be understood through the lens of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's all about Him. You can't understand any of it unless you see it through that lens. And when you see it, that unlocks the meaning of the whole thing. It is sealed until the Lamb, the life, death, and resurrection, opens it up to us. See, in other words, to understand the Word of God, To understand the way of God and the heart of God, we need to know and understand the Lamb of God. There's no other way. There's no other way. God's way is the way of the Lamb who was slain, not the way of human strength and power, not the strength of lions or the power of kings. God's way is the work of the Lamb, and that begins with His death, with the shedding of His blood. The story gets even better. Look at 9 and 10. And they sang a new song. Saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Did you see that thing in verse 9 there? The music starts. Chapter 4, all those doxologies were announced. Here they are sung. It's at this point that music enters the scene. Why here? Well, I think it's because here we see the heart of God. And the beauty of it makes the heart sing. See, chapter 4 gave us this centrality and the sovereignty of God. That gives us stability. We learn our place in the universe. Very, very important. We can't sacrifice that understanding. But here we see the suffering servant. The one who purchases us from our enslavement with his own precious blood. In other words, we see God's love. The word love does not appear here, but it's demonstrated. Right? This is worship in the truest, purest, and best of love songs. That's why the music starts here. And it's in the act of shedding his blood, which is the next focus, right, that he's ransomed the people for God. It's the same word, ransom, means purchase. same one Paul uses in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, where he says, you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. But uh, Jesus ransoms them from the far corners of the earth. John uses every word he can think of to describe... People, every people group, right? And there's going to be some from every people group out there. Now, this work is unfinished yet. We're part of that task to spread the word there, right? But you talk about inclusive. Wow. Somebody from everywhere. We can know something else here. We can recognize one other thing. This is the fulfillment of the promise made way back in Genesis. Do you see how this... Revelation is just soaked with the Old Testament. Just soaked with it. In Genesis twelve, God approached Abram and he said, I will make of you a great nation. That's the nation talked about here. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you'll be a blessing. I will bless you, bless those who bless you, and him who honors dishonors you, I will curse, and in all in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That word families has this idea of every tribe, tongue, and nation to it. That God's kingdom will spread, be ransomed, be extracted from all the people groups. What a picture. This is God's way of handling a decaying and rebellious world. Not with the strength of a lion, with the power of a king, but the blood of the lamb redeeming a new people. Do you remember when Jesus went to the cross, he had this discussion with Pilate. And Pilate said, Are you a king? Jesus, yeah, yeah. But Pilate could not get his head around how a king could die on a cross. Inconceivable how a king could... But that's because he didn't understand the Lamb of God. He didn't understand that whole thing, right? But God is building this new people. What a glorious picture. So, such diversity. You talk about diversity. That's the people of God. Now, there's one part. This is the kicker for all of us, I think. This is one that might make us uncomfortable. It connects with the elders of chapter 5. It connects with the Great Commission in Matthew 27. He says there at the end of this verse... The song of the worshipers tells us that the Lamb has made his people, his kingdom, which would have been an affront to the Romans, right? That this kingdom of the ransomed, is to, there are to be priests to God. Priests. Some of you are saying, whoa, hold it, hold it, hold it. I'm a systems analyst. I'm not a priest. I'm an engineer. I'm a school minister. I'm a school administrator. I'm a teacher. I'm a. I create computer chips. I create software. I build houses. I'm an architect. I'm retired. I'm no priest. Sorry. Not true. Now we have to get out of our mind this whole idea of robes and incense and all this stuff. The kind of priest that is being talked about here is is the one that lives out a life with Jesus in such a way that others can recognize and trust the love of the Lamb. That's the kind of priesthood he's talking about. Remember the very first batch of New Testament priests? Kind of hooligans in some respects. Galilean fishermen and tax collectors? Kind of a dirty dozen. Okay? They weren't exactly, you know, the kind of thing you'd think of as priests. But let's remember, if you know Jesus... And we could see the thread that exists. It goes all the way back to that dirty dozen. Realizing we're priests of God, we have got to get busy with talking to God about these people and talking to people about this God. We're the go-between. That's you and me. We're here because they did that because they recognized it. They weren't always willing. They weren't particularly equipped, but they stepped out in faith, and that's what they did. Okay, you may not feel like being a priest is your thing. Sorry, you are one. So am I. But I can tell you from experience when you become involved, even when you stumble into it with connecting somebody with Jesus, when you begin to see them thrive in the life that Jesus gives them, there is nothing like it. It is the most exciting, the most important thing you can do for any human being on the face of the planet. Right? Uh, It's like Dennis Dixon used to say about parenting it may not be what I do best but it's the best thing I do. Chapter closes with this music and worship increasing. It's a crescendo, the way it's described. First, the elders, and then the living creatures, then myriads on myriads of angels, until finally, every knee is bowing to Christ, the way Paul talks about in Philippians, right? But to close, I just have a, a word that I want to pick up again one more time. Go back to five five where it says, The Lion of Judah has conquered. The word is also translated, has overcome. You may have noticed that this word has been peppered throughout Revelation up to this point. At the end of every letter, there was a promise to him who overcomes. And there's, there's a promise there. In 321, the last one, for example, Jesus says, To the one who conquers, same word, I will grant him to sit on my throne. Honestly, in my study, I didn't, I've never liked that word in, 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 the, in this passage. I don't like that, that you and I have to be conquerors. I know Romans says we're more than conquerors. I don't feel like a conqueror. sounds too much like I have to be Captain America, and I don't have a shield that's worthy of anything. It's too heavy for me. I can't lift it, right? But then I was trying to figure out, what, and this is always the fruitful things when you wrestle with the things you don't get, right? Then I stumbled across John's explanation of this. It's in 1 John. Chapter 5, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes, there's the world, there's that word again, overcomes or conquers the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. How will we overcome the power of the enemy? How will we overcome the power of our own sin and flesh? How will we persevere despite pain and discouragement? How can we carry out our commission as priests of God? The world is in decay. And it confronts us. Every day it's more confrontational towards the things we believe. The only way is by our trust, by our faith. By trusting that the way of the Lamb is the right way. It's God's way. The world's way begins with life and ends with death. God's way starts with death and ends in beautiful, eternal life. The gospel began with the death of Christ, right? Jesus said in, uh, uh, in John, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. So too, if we follow God, it begins with death. Dying to our self-centeredness and self-righteousness. Dying to those ideologies which may be more economic or more political than biblical. Dying to the world's ways of mighty strength and power. And instead trusting the power of the blood of the Lamb, the blood of the new covenant, the covenant that ransomed us and which commissions us to carry the good news to the people in our homes, to the people in our neighborhoods, to the people in our workplaces, to people in faraway places, to people in faraway places that live in our backyards, precisely because this is the music of life, the most important news that anybody can ever hear. To understand the Word of God, to understand the way of God and the heart of God, we need to know and understand the Lamb of God. Let's pray. Lord, the way of the Lamb is is beautiful. It is full of love. But it is it, it is a challenge to us, and we must trust you with it. We want to overpower, we want to override, we want to talk louder. But the way of love is self-sacrifice. That's the way of the Lamb. And that's how... All the battles are won and how the kingdom is restored to the way it should be. Thank you that you love us enough to send the lamb. Help us to respond to him the way we should. Help us to be the priest you want us to be. Give us energy and might and love to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.